Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17. We're in a series that I've titled Lessons from the Transfiguration, Mountaintop Experience, and incredible. The Bible describes it, but it's to, you know, sort of our physical understanding of it, it's indescribable. It's a window into heaven for Peter, James, and John, who were with Jesus, and they saw the pre-incarnate Moses, Elijah, appearances, reflecting glory. But the mountaintop is not just where we live. It's not the day-to-day. It's not the normal or mundane that we have to uh, trod through, let alone the hardships of uh, unforeseen, unforeseeable trials and difficulties and pressures, job pressures, family pressures, life pressures, issues. Living on the mountaintop's great. But then we have to come down to the brass tacks and um, sort of hard path of life. We talked about suffering and hardship that uh, Jesus was wanting the three, Peter, James, and John, to discern was coming. Uh, The mountaintop experience was one where they were up there with Jesus, and the lesson one was listen to Jesus. Need to be a listener. Listen to him. You could focus on what Peter's talking about doing, but that was pragmatic. Say, listen to Jesus. Number two is where we're walking down, they start to discuss and describe things, and perhaps it was even a treacherous uh, descent down a mountain, uh, Mount Hermon, if that was it, 7,000 feet, you know, elevation going down. They're having a discussion with Jesus, and Jesus is saying, uh, you need to discern the times. You need to discern uh, my plan because I don't want you to tell anybody about the transfiguration experience till after I've been raised from the dead. Why? Because that's what's next in the program. It's the path of suffering before the past path of uh, exaltation. It's the cross before the crown. <clears throat> it's humility before exaltation to the right hand of the Father. And so wait, wait until I'm raised to talk about that experience. You need to discern things. Don't live for the experience, live for persevering because heaven is, <clears throat> is what we're, <clears throat> excuse me, going towards. Yeah, I might want some water. I, yeah, that might be good. <clears throat> anyway, so if someone could get me some water, that would be just there. Pete, thank you. Yeah, that would be awesome. I don't want to choke through that. Thank you. Yeah. All right. And thank you, live streamers um, who, who are joining us as well. We appreciate you as well. So the, the lessons are as follows. Number one, listen to Jesus. Thank you, Pete. Thank you. Number two, discern the times. Discern um, the plan. See the big picture. John the Baptist has already come. Remember, we learned that last time. He came as the foreshadowing of Elijah, and he's the fulfillment of of all the prophecies that a forerunner needed to come. And so they're descending down this hill, and and they're going to go from a spiritual high to a kind of real-life low. You go from the mountaintop to facing the the hardship of life. It's kind of like when Moses descended from Mount Sinai. Remember, he received the Ten Commandments in glory. The finger of God is writing them. The thunder and lightning is around. This is, I think it's Exodus chapter 19. It's this um, thunderous Shekinah glory moment. And Moses, when he came down 
to his people, the Jews who'd been rescued, who were going to the promised land, they, in their impatience, had already melted down their precious metals and gold and had molded it into a golden calf that they were worshiping in false worship um, away from the Lord. Aaron, who was a part of that as the high priest, is culpably responsible as a leader in that moment, a failed leader, and Moses was discouraged. Mountaintop experiences, perhaps you've had them maybe at a Christian camp or, or um, maybe a high in your life, a conference, and then you come back into reality, they can be very dangerous. You can be very vulnerable to susceptible things or sins or stumbling if you're living in the mountaintop and you're not prepared for what lies ahead. The mountaintop is supposed to teach you something. That's what Jesus is doing here. You got to be someone who listens. You got to be someone who discerns and sees things as to what the Lord is doing and how you fit into it. And then finally, you need to be someone who exercises faith. You need to exercise faith. Jesus is preparing for the disciples to take the baton and carry on the mission as Jesus' proxy on earth. Jesus is leaving, and they've got to be strong for the mission. I get concerned when people call things revival and trust in that too quickly. I've read some in the Christian news about the Asbury University revival that's taking place. And, you know, kids and students are there and singing and sort of staying in their chapel time in that way. And that's all well and good. But you have to understand that that's not the reality of the hard life that's ahead. If you don't take what you learn in, your, in the presence of the Lord and then apply it well, you can fall and falter. And in this case, the disciples are going to teach us that we need to be willing to exercise faith. And they're going to teach us that through their kind of stumbling and bumbling by not, teach, by not exercising faith. And we learn this in verses 14 through 20. This is our section of of, um, Matthew 17. Listen as I read this account. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed... You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. It's a curious experience. Peter, James, and John, they're exempt from what the remaining nine disciples, who were the apostles, were doing. They were with Jesus. They're learning these lessons, and they're carrying these lessons in their heart, and they're moving from heaven-like experience to a hellish earthly experience. They're moving from seeing the power of God to seeing the power of Satan. And they're moving into this crowd that is a crowd of doubters that are stirred up. We're going to see in cross-reference that Mark's account, Mark 9, says scribes were there, and they were stirring up doubt. Mark 9, 14, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd. So you have these thrill-seeking people who want to see miracles around them and scribes are arguing with them. What are they arguing? 
They're arguing, no doubt, about the fact that the apostles couldn't bring the bacon. Where's the miracle power? What's happening? Maybe we should doubt Jesus. Maybe we should doubt the disciples. This boy has a problem, and they tried to intervene to no avail. So they're arguing over how the apostles were rendered powerless. In verse 14 of our text, Matthew 17, it says, they came to the crowd. This was Peter, James, John, and Jesus, and a man came up. The man is the father. So you have a dad and a son, a very concerned dad, a dad who's at wit's end with his son and wants him healed, wants him literally to be restored back to health. And He was probably discouraged because the apostles, no matter what they did, couldn't deliver the son from his problem. But seeing Jesus, perhaps he was relieved. Uh, It's a crisis that was thrusting this man forward. It says that he kneeled on the ground. It said he came kneeling before him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son. This saying where he's speaking is a present active participle. He's ongoingly begging the Lord for help. He says, for he's an epileptic. Epileptic in um, sort of English tradition is um, used for the word moonstruck. It's the idea of people going crazy because they were seeing the different phases of the moon and fixating that way, so they're moonstruck. Epileptic, um, as a di- epilepsy is a diagnosis is a very serious one. If you've ever seen someone fall into an epileptic seizure, you know it's very serious. Um, You want to keep them from choking. And I've been in this situation before where someone falls down and has that um, happen. That's a metabolic um, issue. We know from the text that this is um, rising far above a metabolic issue or physiology, though the manifestations were epileptic-like. Perhaps they were actual seizures, but these were um, demon-inspired or demon-initiated. This is a man who's saying, in Luke 9.38, the the cross-reference account, this is my only son. Please, Lord Jesus, help my only son. He's going to meet the Son of God, who is God the Father's only begotten son. And so these are the circumstances. The child's in trouble. He's at a deep level. And any good parent will want to ensure the safety and health of a child that is loved. It's crazed, irrational behavior. What was the behavior like? Do you see it? I mean, it says he, he is an epileptic. He suffers terribly. The language is potent. This is terrible suffering. And I think it's Mark's account that says it was from childhood that this Little boy has suffered in this way. So his whole life, he's been doing this. What's he been doing? He falls into the fire and off into the water. Fire and water, two things that can like wipe someone out. I'm always afraid of like the gas fire or the the fire happening in, in our house. We've seen episodes where, you know, the flame goes up and, and it's, it can be very scary. Or, or kids around water, kids around a lake, kids at the ocean on vacation. What are you doing if you're a parent? You're just, you're having fun kicking back. No, you're there. You're trying to keep your kid alive. I mean, hey, let's pay a bunch of money and get our kids in by the water so we can just be terrified, right? 
So uh, I used to be a lifeguard. I have kind of PTSD from that. I, I lifeguarded the ocean, but also um, I did lake lifeguarding, which was scarier than anything in the ocean. The ocean, you could kind of see what's going on and what you need to do. With the lake, all you're doing is counting all day long. You're sitting and you're going one, two, three, because you want to see heads pop back up. Because if someone goes in the water the wrong way, they can die. With fire, this kid was throwing himself into the fire, meaning he would have been scarred all the way up. And probably just the, this dad was terrorized by this, and really he knew that this was demonic. The devil was inflicting child abuse on this kid. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and we need to be weary of our children. And we, we might not see manifestations where a, ki- a kid of ours is throwing himself into mortal danger, but be not deceived that Satan wants to steal your kid's soul away. J.C. Ryle said, we must labor to do good to our children, even from the earliest years. If Satan begins uh, so early to do them harm, we must not be behind him in diligence to lead them to God. It is never too soon to strive to pray for the salvation of the souls of our children, never too soon to speak of them as moral beings and to tell them of God and Christ, right and wrong. The devil, we may be quite sure, loses no time in endeavoring to influence the minds of young people. Our our complex here, I'm proud of it, not because I did anything here, but because there's a bunch of kids here all the time. Awana has a bunch of kids, like 150 of them or, or whatever, maybe 200 kids coming through Awana. The youth ministry has a lot of kids. We have kids that come on Wednesday night that are from different churches because of our school ministry, and we open the doors on Wednesday night. We have sports teams. We have kids that are praying before and after school events and games and events. We have fine arts here. We have a lot of kids. We have little kids lined up in the hallway all the time. I'm always like walking around um, during my work day because of Grace Christian School and kids that are here. We have, we're celebrating VBS coming We have Sunday school going on. There's a lot of kids stuff here. Why? Because we know that we have the good news that can keep a kid from going to hell. We can sow seed early and we need to call them to Christ as Christ called them to himself early. And that's the heart cry of this dad. He wants this kid to be delivered certainly from the demon and certainly from um, death, but he wants this kid to be delivered. He wants to get this kid to Jesus. And this is the passion of a parent who's committed to their child. This child would have been burned. This child would have been terrorized, never having a good night's sleep, never having a good day. He wants the child to be healed. The word heal here can be the um, translated word restore. It probably is kind of both. It's a restoration. There's a general malaise because of demons in the influence that's happening here. And the apostles were of no help. The apostles who were left there, empowered to heal, empowered to help, empowered to do the work of Jesus on Jesus' behalf while he's up the mountain, We're able to do nothing. You say, well, were they given that power yet at this point? Well, Matthew 10 says that they had been. Verse 6, a few chapters before. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, which is, these are Israelites, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse lepers. Bring heaven to earth. Do what I have been doing. As a proxy, I don't think that's our mission and ministry right now in this age of the church, but that was the apostolic ministry then to say Christ's power is real, it's vindicated, 
and it carried into the early church. Luke 9.1, and he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. This is for the 12, the 12. We know Judas Iscariot was an unbeliever, but the 12 were empowered to do this. Even someone who was doing it out of a, out of a false heart. Well, first of all, we learned that the disciples were stifled. The disciples were stifled. They were unable to do things, but the demon was stronger. And we say demons at this point were stronger than what the disciples were achieving. And I want you to see this. This really discouraged the Lord. This is a divine insight into the heart of Christ. This is what it looks like to grieve the Holy Spirit, to be not acting in faith. Jesus is there, and they are faithless. And he, in exasperation, says, Verse 17, and Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. This is the Lord. You say, is is the Lord being fair? Is he being discouraging? Well, the Lord is discouraged when people do not believe in him. He's calling out a faithless generation. The word generation we can trace in um, the book of Matthew is used over and over again. It's the word for race or ethnos, and it's uh, talking about the Jews. It's a Jewish people. Why, why haven't you believed in your Messiah? I'm here, and here you are in conflict over the apostles and what they were unable to achieve, their faithlessness. It's created this seed of doubt in your own heart for me who's here. And how long will I stay here? I'm in your presence physically. And how long will I bear with you? I'm running out of capacity to keep doing what I'm doing. That's what Jesus is saying here. And you say, how is that possible? Well, it's the full humanity of Christ. Not at the expense of his deity, but it's the full humanity of Christ. He's been transfigured where full deity was on display. And now all of that is sort of subsumed in his human flesh and, and he is sinless but real, just saying, I'm throwing my hands up. This faithless generation. It's a twisted generation too. He's saying it's demented. It's a, it's a confused uh, generation where something that's malleable can be twisted or distorted, put out of joint. It's, it's upside down. Jesus is being incredulous here with the generation. And he's looking at the self-righteous scribes. He's looking at the thrill-seeking consumers, all the crowds who just want something from Jesus. And then I think by implication, he's rebuking and chiding the apostles. He's just saying, you're acting like them. Jesus is excoriating here. And if he left the excoriating rebuke just on the scribes and Pharisees, we might be okay. If he then broadened it to the Jews, we might be okay. But he's saying faithless and twisted by implication at the whole group. We know that the world is faithless. Those who have not yet believed, if you're not born again, by de facto, you are faithless. You have no faith. You're without faith. Logically, everyone that's not expressed faith in Christ, not tasted grace, not experienced regeneration, uh, is not a believer. If you've been born again, you have faith, you've believed, and nothing can change that. But this is targeted specifically at the Jews who should have believed. 
This is the generation that should have believed, a generation that is looking into the very eyes of the Messiah. Uh, Matthew eleven sixteen says, but what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces, calling out to their playmates. They're just playing games. They're not dialing in. Matthew 12, verse 39, he answered, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. The Pharisees, the scribes, show us something. Do a magic trick. Matthew 16, verse 4, uh, carries on this thought. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Nothing will be shown you but Jonah. In other words, I'm bringing you to the word of God to prove who I am, and the Spirit will show you or not. Matthew 23, 36, again, it's all through here. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. These are the woe judgments that were given to the scribes and the Pharisees. And Matthew 24, verse 34 uh, goes, Truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. This is the lesson from the fig tree where heaven and earth will eventually pass away. Not only is it faithless, but it's perverse. The Jews were religious, but their hearts were perverse. Their hearts were twisted. I think we put, we've put on a very good American church face for a long time and been able to hide behind that veneer and say, we are just fine with our religion. People that don't go to church aren't as good at us, good as we are, and so we're just fine. But the indictment is on the religious as being perverse and twisted. Paul will actually use this word diastrepho, perverse, for the whole world. Philippians 2.17, he's quoting Jesus, applying it to the whole world, saying that you may be blameless and innocent. Those are the, that's the church, children of God without blemish in the midst or in the middle of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights to the world. Who do we shine in front of? We shine in front of people who are getting it wrong. The whole LGBTQ um, plus open-ended symbol is this idea that people are saying, I have the right to say what gender I am, whether I'm really a male or a female. It's people who are trying to play God. That is, I mean, you can talk about all the different varieties of sin, but people who try to play God are twisted up in their minds. And people who try to impose government strictures to protect children to try to make that choice on their own, irrespective of their parent in a public school, that's twisted up. That's messed up. And we have to say it. We have to call it out. We are the shining light to say God is God and we cannot try to deny God. We need to uphold what God, God's word says and defines so clearly. This is why Jesus sighs. He's looking at the Jews and he's saying, I, I am only going to be with you for a little while. He time fuses his time here on earth. He says, I'm going to leave. How long will I bear with you? How long will I put up with this? This is wearing me down. He's, accept, he's uh, exercised extreme patience. But let me ask this question here. This is the question of the text. How does this apply to the disciples? I think the disciples lit the fuse. The disciples couldn't heal the boy. They couldn't cast the demon out. I think they're the ones who got Jesus exercised, exacerbated, incredulous, He's, how long am I going to stay here? I think he's like a dad who's going, you know what? You're hanging out with Tommy again. No offense to any of you Tommies out there or Susie or whatever. You're hanging out with the bad kids. They're not believers. 
you've professed to be a believer. I saw faith in you. You're acting like they are. You're trying to pull life off like they are. And any time an unbeliever, I mean a believer, starts hanging out with unbelievers and starts acting like them, it's very discouraging to Jesus. And I think that's what Jesus is incited by. Perhaps the crowds were saying, hey, let, show, us, show us your miracle power. And the apostles say, all right, we're going to do it. And then nothing happens. Once again, let's try again. Nothing. It's embarrassing. It's humbling. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to lump you in with this broad rebuke. Not that you don't have faith, but you're acting like a faithless generation. You're trying my patience. Peter, James, and John would have been exempt from this. They were coming down with Jesus from the mountain. Judas Iscariot was an unbeliever. He would have been faithless, obviously. But you have eight more apostles who had faith, who were, I think, lumped in at a level. What went wrong is they were living in defeat of the devil at this point which should not be the case for any believer, not just apostles, but any believer. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We are to take up the arm, full armor of God to be able to distinguish the, the devil's um, fiery arrows. We, are, um, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities. And with the armor of God, we can avoid and resist the schemes of the devil. James says that we resist the devil, he will flee from us. Listen, Satan and demons, it scares all kinds of people in our culture. That's why you have horror movies. People are aware of the unseen world. They're aware of the fear of that. Christians are to be fearless of that. We fear sinning. We fear temptation. But we know that, that we are unseparatable from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us. Uh, we cannot be ripped from the Father's hands. In fact, we are armed with the weapons that are spiritual weapons like Paul had where we destroy speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, um, taking captive all doctrines of demons to the obedience of Christ. We can discern these things. We can know the truth. We are free from Satan. We can discern the lies of the devil. We can do all those things. And Jesus was discouraged because at this point, he felt like he could not leave the keys of the car with his children. At this point, he expected to be able to um, leave the house in the hands of his kids, and he couldn't do it yet. They weren't ready. They needed more training, and it's coming towards the end of the three years. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to die and rise. This is part of God's plan, and Jesus knows it, and so he's, he's wanting to make this point. You need to exercise faith. This was a test balloon. I know that's too soon with what's going on in the news, but it's a test balloon where they fail. This is the deepest issue. He couldn't leave them in charge. They were failing in their faith. Do you remember when Jesus calmed the waters in the Sea of Galilee and said, hush, be still, and the disciples are, you know, reeling in that miracle. They thought they were going to die. And in Mark's account of that, the language he uses is literally the word order is, where is the faith of you? They had faith. Why weren't you exercising your faith? You can have faith and not exercise faith. Matthew 6, don't be anxious for the Lord's provision. Exercise faith. It's 
a lesson that's taught over and over again, even to Peter. You remember the account where Peter was walking on the water? He goes down, and Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among your... Or this actually is a different account. This is where they were discussing for bread. Where are we going to find bread? And Jesus had just fed the 4,000, and before that had fed the 5,000. But the event of, of Peter, I think that's Matthew 14, 31. If you'll look there, Jesus immediately reached out his hand. There it is, and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus expected Peter to make it across the water and be fine, firm in faith. Anytime the, a believer acts like an unbeliever, it's a lapse in faith. You've turned that off. Do you get that? You've, you've stopped exercising faith. Now, we don't have faith in faith. We have faith in the object of our faith, which is the Lord, which is the promises of the word of God. We're not drunk with wine, but we're filled in the Holy Spirit. We're submitting our minds and wills and emotions to the Lord, to his word, to his sovereign lordship in our lives. But anytime you sort of shift into the flesh, you're not operating in faith. The rebuke was strong here, and it's equally strong throughout the New Testament when believers act like unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 5, there's a very strong rebuke from Paul where he's talking about um, delivering a man over to Satan. This is 1 Corinthians 5, 5, for the destruction of his flesh. What's the motive? Put him outside the church because he has been involved in immorality and he's to be called out for that so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He, I think Paul believed this man was a brother. He called him a so-called brother, but he's like, he's a brother in the Lord, but he's acting like the worst of the world, but we're going to put him out so that he'll be rescued. In 1 Corinthians 6, there's the idea that, look, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You got to make a decision. Are you going to act like the world and join yourself with prostitutes or act like the temple of the Holy Spirit? Be who you are. Be pure. Verse 17 of Matthew Matthew 17, 17, Jesus says, bring him to me. Jesus is there not to just rebuke the apostles, but to show them the way out. This is how it should have gone. I'm going to now model for you what you should do. And Jesus rebuked the demon, verse 18, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed immediately or instantly, instantly, right away. Uh, you, some translations would say that hour. But the idea of the expression is it's right then. Uh, Mark's account gives uh, some detail to the healing that he, the boy fell like a corpse. People thought he was dead. He just, the demon went out and he just probably in physical exhaustion just dropped. And Jesus, it shows him um, reaching down and lifting him up. And immediately he stood up where the apostles had been powerless. Jesus was powerful. In his rebuke, the demon left. The boy got up. Mark chapter 9, 26 and 27 shows that. 
was the boy morally culpable for throwing himself in water and fire? We don't know. The text doesn't say. Decisions that people make in their minds, even when they are being tempted by the devil, um, you know, there, there's culpability with that usually. It doesn't matter. It was resolved immediately. It was over. This child was preserved. Preserved. You know what all of this was? It was a clear indictment on the disciples. They weren't exercising faith. Go over to Mark's account and you see a magnification of this. Mark chapter 9, verse, verses 26 and following. Maybe skip up to verse 21. It says, Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood. And he goes into the description about him throwing himself in the fire and water. But look at verse 22, what the father says. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. This is this, is this father exercising a measure of faith. He's trying. He's trying. What the apostles weren't doing, this father does. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. That's faith. I believe. Same word. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. Give me the strength to believe. This is all of what the disciples need to learn to implement. They were stifled. And the demons were stronger, but the dilemma becomes very specific. It's very specified. They didn't have, they weren't operating in faith. Remember the demoniac, when he came, he had a legion of demons and Jesus just cast him out. In Acts 19.15, the kind of humorous story of the sons of Sceva is of interest to me because they were operating the flesh. They were trying to, they were trying to, use the name of Jesus like a mantra to cast out demons. Verse 13 of Acts 19, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook uh, to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. You hear this in charismatic circles that are errant, where they start using the name of Jesus to, as a magic uh, spell to come over demons. I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit, the demon, answered them, this, the sons of Sceva. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on, in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Demons are not to be trifled with. Remember, the apostles had the authority over the demons. Luke ten seventeen says the 72 returned with joy. They'd been sent out and it said, Lord, the demons are even subject to your name. So they had experienced this, but now... What was the dilemma that was keeping them from having power and authority over the demons? We see this in verse 19. It says, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? We're just, they're just humbled. Their tail is tucked between their legs. They're meeting privately, humbled by this. Why couldn't we do it? What, what's the problem? What went wrong? Why couldn't we do what you just did? That, that was how it's supposed to go. We use the same protocol, but to no avail. Well, the dilemma came down to one thing, and it was little faith. Look at verse 20. He said to them, 
because of your little faith. Little faith. Now, they're not, Jesus is not saying they didn't have faith. He's just saying it was little faith. How little? Smaller than the grain of a mustard seed. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Stop there. Jesus is at first using a reverse hyperbole. He's saying, look, here's a mustard seed, something that's microscopic almost to the eye. And if you just had that little amount of faith, you would have had success. Now, the mustard seed, he had used that same analogy in Matthew 13 with the parables of the kingdom. He said, when that seed is sown, like the gospel is sown, amazing things happen. I mean, Jesus, who was from obscure Bethlehem and, and 2,000 years ago, and here we are today living in the wake of gospel thunder and lightning, even up here in Anchorage, Alaska, and the message is going around the world. Uh, that scene of a mustard seed being planted, then growing a great, mighty bush-like tree where birds can nest, that's Matthew 13. In the same way, a small measure of faith makes all the difference in the world. And I've experienced this. We're all trying to do things in my own flesh and make something happen. Try to argue for it, push it, make the issue, roll it forward. And instead of that, I just go, okay, I gotta stop. I'll trust the Lord. And then boom, something amazing happens. It's like what I was trying to make happen that I never could make happen, the Lord does it a different way just by me letting go. That's mustard seed-like faith that is actually strong faith. Faith isn't something that we muster up in our own flesh. It's a, it's a recognition that you can't do it. It's believing that only God can do it. That's faith. It's the instrument that God allows us to use and participate through which is a complete resignation to the Lord and his power, not our own. Remember, Peter, James, and John had been on the mountaintop. They saw the object of faith. They knew to believe in the Lord, but it is the lesson before their eyes that even when the lights turn off and the glowing brilliance of the Lord is shut and life gets really hard and the Lord goes to the cross and dies and then he rises again, but then he departs and life is even harder, you have to exercise faith all the more. So Peter, James, and John as the leaders of the 12, which will be the leaders of the movement, they're observing apostles who are lapsing in their exercising of faith. The object of the faith is the Lord. The goal is the glory, but the path is hard. And the process comes through exercising faith. Listen to Jesus, listen to his word, discern who you are in the Lord, what the times call for, discern the plan of God. This is all part of the process. It's going to get harder before it gets easier and then exercise faith. These are the foundational lessons to persevere through the path that is in front of them. Look at the language here. He says, if you do this, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there. What mountain? Well, perhaps it was Mount Hermon that they had just descended, ascended and descended, Peter, James, and John. I think in my little internet research that the um, O'Malley Peak would be half the size of Mount Hermon, so just double O'Malley Peak in your mind, and that's what they just came down. 
And Jesus is saying, if you exercise faith, you could just move this mountain. Well, nowhere in church history was a mountain ever moved. There has been some astrophysiological things that happened that were miraculous, like an axe head floating or the sun standing still. I mean, we know those things are, are biblical accounts and historical for reasons. But I think this is more of a metaphor. It's the idea that figuratively you're saying, I'm, I'm exercising faith in the Lord and things on the scale of a mountain moving can happen. Well, what's on the scale of a mountain moving if we're not talking a literal mountain? How about a stony hard heart that's going in one direction being transformed instantaneously and brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son? In two weeks, we're going to have worship in the realm. We'll have four testimonies from the waters of baptism so far. They keep mounting and it's transformed lives. People's lives are changing. And it might, we might not see the Shekinah glory. We might not have a lot of bells and whistles here as a church, like the transfiguration. But within the hard path of real life, you see these bright shimmers of hope and glory where transformed lives are taking place. And a lot of times it comes by means of prayer, exercising faith. Mountains are moved. People that misapply this text Um, Without faith um, are mistaken. There are people who believe they can change the weather. The new apostolic reformation, a false gospel, false teaching movement um, that's a hyper charismatic movement is very dangerous. And it promises people that they can be little gods and that they can direct the weather and change things. That's not praying by faith at all. That's imposing your own will according to your own exertion. And I think that's probably what the apostles were falling prey to. They were imposing their own will, trying to whoop up, um, you know, enough energy to get this demon out of that boy instead of relying on the Lord. Um, When we, Matthew 7, 7 says, if you ask and seek and knock, it'll be given to you. What does that mean? Well, that's not that we can treat Jesus like a genie in the bottle. That's asking things according to the will of the Lord. Everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. The context there is if you're a son asking a father for bread, he's not going to give you a stone. If you're asking for a fish to eat, he's not going to give you a snake that'll bite you. It's operating within the father's will. That's what prayer is like. You're synchronizing your mind with what you believe the Lord wants in your life. And when that synchronization happens or those gears mesh, you see the Lord answer, yes, it's amazing. And it happens. I've been 30 years in the Lord and I've seen some, some times where the Lord answers very specifically, yes. He always answers. He just doesn't always answer yes, right? But 1 John five fourteen is probably the clearest representation of what Jesus is talking about. Uh, 1 John five fourteen. And this is the confidence we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know if he, if, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we've asked of him. We're praying according to the will of God. Uh, Transform lives, people's hearts changing, praying for our kids, praying for kids within the church. This is the mountain-moving ministry of the Lord. Jesus wanted to leave his disciples as a proxy on earth where they believed that the last phrase of verse 20 is true, nothing will be impossible for you. Well, many of the apostles died as martyrs. 
were killed, were incarcerated. They weren't just dictating and directing life in terms of exactly how it was going to go, but they were able to face whatever was thrown at them and persevere through it in faith. And that's the point, exercising faith. We have to be able to do it. Be willing to ask the Lord for your faith to increase and grow so that you can be up for the hard path and give glory through it.